Well, my friends, the Jews knew God's presence was everywhere. Of course he is, that he's omnipresent. But they also understood something else about God, that the the temple's top secret room, and here's a cutaway picture of it, called the Holy of Holies. That's the temple in Jerusalem, of course. This place was a special place. It was the place of God's special earthly presence. Now, we need to understand this to understand what is happening in Hebrews. And this is why they loved being near the temple. The whole life revolved around the temple, if you will. You say, why? Well, Israel wanted to be close to God. And even way back into to the tabernacle when they were traveling in the wilderness, all the tents would be set up around the, the tabernacle. That's the way it was. Access to God was seen as the highest good. Well, they were right. Because access presupposes something. It presupposes that you have a right relationship to God, and there is nothing more important than that. Access would mean acceptance before God. It means there's a forgiveness of sins and an exposure to God's glory. Well, despite their desires, and you'll see the uh, a closer view there, by the way, a cutaway view into that very top secret room in there called the Holy of Holies. And, and, and by the way, despite all their desires, all Jews lived with limited access to God. You'll see that in that room there, that God required, all the way back to the tabernacle, God required Israel to put a veil over that top secret room we call the Holy of Holies. Official access was only granted one time a year by one person, and it was only the high priest who was allowed in there. And he was only allowed in there after he himself went through all these ritual cleansing things he had to do, washing hands and so forth. He had to make a sacrifice for his own sins before he could go into that holy of holies. Why was there this separation between God and his people? Why? Well, if you don't understand two things, you'll never understand this. See, the problem is, is there's the radical holiness of God and the radical sinfulness of mankind. Because of the radical holiness, his, his uniqueness, distinctness, and separateness from all of his creation, and, and we're not holy, therefore there's this huge gulf. And God was picturing that even in their worship. However, however, the new covenant comes along, and the new covenant was radically different from this old covenant. The new covenant began when the veil of the temple ripped in two. You'll see someone's graphic illustration of it right there, of, of priest in the temple. It was a huge veil, by the way, and a very thick veil. Somebody said it was, it was the thickness of the palm of your hand. No way that a human being could possibly rip that veil, but yet God ripped it in two. The very moment when Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, as he is on the cross, the veil in the temple ripped in two from top to bottom. So here's Christ. He dies on the cross. He ends that old covenant, and he institutes a new covenant, which he said he would do, by the way. Remember the Last Supper? He's in that upper room with his disciples, and he says, Hey, drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. There's a new covenant coming, is what he was saying. And it's coming with my sacrifice, my death. So he ended the old. He instituted the new covenant. A new priesthood, as a result, in the order of Melchizedek, provided access now for every believer. So unfulfilled desires for God's presence became a thing of the past, for all Christians, it's, it just God was showing us a beautiful picture of access to Him by ripping that veil in two. Access is the heart application here discussed in Hebrews chapter 7. In fact, if you look, let me just show you one verse. All right, Look at verse 19. Just so you believe what the text says. 
Verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Very important verse here. This is what God is doing. God is making it possible for His people to draw near to Him in this new covenant. And notice it's a new hope, a better hope. And so our study here is about access to God, which in the text is called a better hope. So hopefully as we study this text today, you're going to be motivated and encouraged in your access to God. So let's read the text together. I will read aloud Hebrews 7, starting in verse 11. Hebrews 7, 11 says, Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness, and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, some of your Bibles might say therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. But the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That ends chapter 7. The proposition for us to consider from this text today is this, my friends, that God wants you to draw near to him through Christ, so that you will be saved completely. I'm pretty much getting all that from verse 25. Uh, I feel like the text is kind of revolving around verse 25. You'll see the word therefore, or consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So why that proposition? Well, we need to understand some things from this text. First of all, why did God's people require a new high priest anyway? (laughs) God promised it right here, uh, pointing back to Psalm 110. Twice, twice it's quoting Psalm 110 there in this text. God said there needed to be a new high priest. There was coming a new high priest. Why? Well, let's take a look at the necessity 
of a new priesthood from Hebrews 7. Number one, we see Israel's priesthood could not bring people to perfection. Therefore, we need a new priesthood. That's what verse 11 is showing us here, my friends. Verse 11 says, Now if perfection had been attainable, which it wasn't. (laughs) Notice, now if perfection had been attainable. And notice it goes on to say, For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rhetorical question. Israel's priesthood could not bring people to perfection. In fact, you say, what is perfection here in this context? Well, it means this, my friends. It means to put someone in a position in which they can come before God. So they're now able to have access to God. Well, we just saw. We saw in the Old Testament. They didn't have access to God. Only the high priest had access into the Holy of Holies only one time a year. So why is access so important? If you have access to God, then you have this right relationship to God. This is precisely what the old covenant law and the priesthood was not able to provide for them. The law was a good thing, the Bible says in Romans. It was a tutor, though. It was like a schoolmaster, if you will. It was a teacher. What was it doing? It was leading us to Christ. But the law could never save anyone. It showed you you needed a Savior. The law couldn't deal with our real problem. It could not transform anyone's sinful nature. It only revealed your sinful nature. The law couldn't remove your sin. It only covered your sin temporarily which is why you had to keep doing all these sacrifices. So clearly the Old Covenant had some very serious limitations. It couldn't atone for sin. It couldn't impart life to you. It could not clear your conscience. It could not provide access to God. That's why we see the necessity for a new priesthood. Because Israel's priesthood couldn't bring people to perfection. Could not provide that access to God. Number two. Let's see here that Israel's ceremonial law could not provide access to God. That's why there's a necessity for a new priesthood. So verse 12 reminds us of this. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. They go together. Israel's system of sacrifices, Hebrews is saying, it's been set aside. The Jews are being told, hey, you don't need to go on this long trek to the temple in Jerusalem. What's done, it's, it, that's all done with. It's over. It's, it's been replaced and, and permanently replaced by a new priesthood. Now, some who had come to Christ, many, by the way, who were, uh, thinking of, of coming were still worshiping at the temple. They're still hanging on to that, the ritual of that oldest system you can read about in Leviticus. In fact, some believing Jews not only insisted on maintaining their Jewish practices, but they were even making them mandatory for anybody who wanted to become a Christian. These people, by the way, were called Judaizers, and they were a thorn in the Apostle Paul's side, if you will. They were a pain in the neck. You can read about them over and over in the book of Acts and in most of the epistles, it seems like they're, they're there creating problems. And these Judaizers were a plague to the early church for many years. See, they would go around telling prospective believers and even non-Jewish Christians that they needed to be circumcised and, and, and you need to have these sacrifices done in the temple. And then follow all these prescribed Jewish laws and rituals, and then you can have this this right relationship with God. It was this Judaizing that the Apostle Paul opposed very strongly, particularly in the book of Galatians. Let me just show you a few. I'm going to highlight just a few verses from the book of Galatians here for you, starting in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. 
Paul tells them, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Then he goes on, chapter 4 and 5, and he says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Chapter 5, verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Dangerous. So the ceremonial law could not provide access to God. Let's also see in verses 13 and 14 that the new high priest came from a non-priestly tribe. Well, we see that the first high priest was Moses' brother Aaron. And they were of the tribe of Levi. And so you get this whole Levitical system coming from the tribe of Levi. And so there comes along a new priest who is not of the tribe of Levi, which is the point here in verses 13 and 14, because it talks about another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Because God specifically prescribed in the Old Covenant it was only to be priests coming from the tribe of Levi. But now verse 14 says, For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's not from Levi. So how can he be a priest? Well, this is important, my friends. See, the inadequacy of that old priesthood is is being further emphasized here by the fact that the new had nothing to do with that old Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood coming from Aaron. It was a big deal, by the way, to say that a priest could come from any other tribe than Levi. If you don't believe me, the, the Old Testament shows us this truth. For example, for example, Second Chronicles, it says that King Uzziah was a fool when he, he walks in and he tries to act like a priest. You'll see a picture of a well, someone's drawing of him there anyway. It's not really him, is it? Anyway, what, what happened there in the Bible in Second Chronicles? So he's trying to act like a priest. He's confronted by the priest for what he's doing. And they're saying, you're wrong. Uzziah's yelling at the priest. He thinks he's right. Well, God tells him who's right. And God gave King Uzziah leprosy that broke out on his head. And King Uzziah remained a leper for the rest of his life, his earthly life. So the insistence that Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, was a priest, was shocking to the Hebrews. In fact, it was considered illegal for anybody other than a Levite to be a priest. So my friends, think of the day here that Christ became both sacrifice and priest. He was both. I mean, right there alone shows you the superiority of Christ. We know it was about 3 p.m. in Jerusalem. Jesus was hanging on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. The Bible says that Jesus didn't die. He gave up his spirit. At that very moment, the earth shook so much that the rocks cracked. The thick curtain of the temple tore into two pieces. Why was all that happening? Jesus was declaring to the whole world that the insufficiency of Israel's priesthood was finished. He said, I came to fulfill the law. Perfection was achieved in Jesus. The new high priest was now beginning his eternal ministry. He's the new high priest. So that's why he rips that veil of the temple open. Declaring the old priesthood is done. So why was Christ's priesthood so important? Well, let's take a look at the superiority of the new priesthood. We've seen why there, there needs to be a new priesthood. Well, let's, let's just see how superior is Christ's priesthood over the old. Well, number one, 
Christ arose by Himself, which provides a superior priesthood for all believers. Look at verse 15. Interesting way of saying this here in verse 15. It goes on to say, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now verse 15 there is speaking of a priest arising. The English may not convey this as clearly as I'd like, so, so bear with me. The, the word arises there in the Greek is in the middle voice. It's reflexive, if you will. The phrase could actually be translated, another priest arises by himself. The meaning has very special significance in, in several ways. Uh, for, for one, uh, I believe it signifies the virgin birth of Christ. Christ is totally unique from, from us and everybody else, isn't he, in his virgin birth? And as God, Jesus raised himself up by giving birth to himself, so to speak. The Bible says the Holy Spirit was involved in that, of course, but there is one God. So no Israeli priest could ever make that kind of a claim. All other priests besides Jesus arose by virtue of having mothers and fathers who brought them into the world. You had to be born into that system, into that, that tribe we call Levi. None of them were able to do that by themselves, but Christ did. There's a second way Christ arose by himself. He, he's arising by, by himself here implies that this other priest had no priestly ancestry, no priestly heritage. That's why he's connected to Melchizedek. See, Israel's priests only claimed a right because of who their parents were. Jesus claimed the right because of who he himself is. There's a third way. He arises by himself. Of course, we know Jesus didn't stay dead. He arose. It indicates his resurrection. He arose. Death couldn't hold him. So all of these ways show Christ to be the superior priest. How else do we see Christ to be the superior priest? Number two, Christ's indestructible life provides a superior priesthood for believers. Love that phrase there in verse 16, don't you? Verse 16 says, Who has become a priest? That's Jesus. Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Every superhero wants that power. And only Jesus has it. Only Jesus has that. Christ became a priest, by the way, not because of genealogy or ancestry or heritage. It's based on his life, which is indestructible. In other words, his life could never be destroyed. No mere regulation had installed Jesus into the position of high priest. Yes, of course, we see that Christ did experience death. He gave up his spirit, but his resurrection presented him here as someone who is indestructible. Death couldn't hold him. Satan couldn't hold him down. Satan had no power over him. Therefore, Christ is now able to continue his, his priestly ministry because of his indestructible life. So praise God, my friends. Death could not restrain Christ, and it didn't destroy his priesthood. Instead, what it does, Christ's priesthood is shown now to be permanent. It's shown to be effective for you and for me because of his indestructible life. So just when Satan thinks he's, he's getting the victory, he's, he's just playing right into God's hands. And showing just how indestructible Christ is. Number three, third reason, is that Christ gives hope by providing access to God for believers. He gives hope by providing access to God for believers. How, how is that possible? Well, first of all, God sets aside the old imperfect covenant and He's replaced it with the new and perfect covenant. And so you look at the uh, the phrase there in verse 18, after he quotes Psalm 110 in verse 17, verse 18 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment 
is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That phrase, set aside there, means to do away with something that has been established. For example, that phrase was used in Greek in other ways. For example, it was used of canceling a treaty. It was used of a promise. It was used in making a law. God's saying that whole sacrificial system was canceled, it was done away with, and it was it wasn't just done away with, it was done away with entirely. God, by the way, assured the end of that system by destroying the temple, destroying Jerusalem in AD 70. When God allowed that temple to be destroyed in AD 70, sacrifices ceased. Israel hasn't been the same since then. But why did God do this? Well, verse 18, we see God describes the old system as weak and useless. That's why we needed the new system. The old system could never remove sin, and so itself had to be removed. It brought nothing to conclusion. It gave you no security. It gave no peace in the inner man. A man never had a clear conscience before God under the Old Covenant. But the priesthood of Christ now brings access to God. And now every Christian is a priest before God. Praise God for that glorious truth we call the the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. The precious truth. So we see Christ gives hope here by providing access to to God for believers. Number four, God's oath provides a superior priesthood for believers. Praise God, God made a promise. He's a covenant promise-keeping God. What is the oath? Well, look at verse 21. Verse 21, again, a quote from Psalm 110, like a thousand years before. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind And as he talks about Jesus here, he says, you are a priest forever. So God says of Christ that he is a priest forever. How serious is God about this particular oath? Well, again, you look look at verse 21. This quote here is coming from Psalm 110. God is, is saying, this is what I have sworn. I made this promise. I made this oath. And what's the point? God's oath to establish Jesus as high priest gave this office a strong foundation. The strongest possible foundation. What's the result? The result of God's self-imposed, eternally binding oath is verse 22. Verse 22. That's, here's the result. This makes Jesus... The guarantee, the guarantor, sorry, of a better covenant. So what's a guarantor? Well, my understanding is it's a person that gives or acts as a guarantee. (laughs) So what's a guarantee? (laughs) All right, so this is the person who's acting as, as a, as a guarantee. So what's a guarantee? Well, it's a formal assurance that there's certain conditions that are going to be fulfilled. It's something Another way of saying it's something that ensures a particular outcome is going to happen. Another way is it's an undertaking to answer the payment or performance of another person's debt. Do we have a debt to pay? Yeah. The wages of our sin is death. We have a huge debt that's insurmountable. So yes, we we need someone, a guarantor, to come as our guarantee to undertake, to answer this payment and and do the performance which we could never do and pay this debt. What is the author's point here of all this like legal language? Well, in heaven, Jesus now acts as your guarantor or your guarantee, if you will. And he's doing that even now, my friends. He lives in heaven as your guarantee. For all those who are still on earth, who are awaiting the full outcome of our full salvation and this, this, this better covenant, 
So therefore, we must understand that Jesus will do anything and everything that is at least consistent with his nature to meet our needs, your greatest needs. So praise God, my friends, you and I have a superior priest. How do we know this? Two reasons. Number one, you have God's sworn word. You have his promise. And number two, you have the son's guarantee. And he's not going to try to wiggle out all the fine print that you often find you know, at the bottom of the page in your guarantees. Oh, no. He's going to fulfill it all. It's written right here, and he will do it. Number five, how is Christ's priesthood superior? We see that Christ's permanent priestly ministry provides a superior priesthood for believers. So the idea here I want to emphasize is it's permanent because this is vastly different from Israel's priesthood. See, Israel's priesthood had the ultimate disqualification for permanent ministry. You know what it is? Read your Old Testament. It says, Aaron died, Aaron's son died, and his grandson died, and they all died. Death kept them from permanent ministry. None of them could serve forever. Each died and had to be succeeded, and we, in fact, we have a a great demonstration of this in Numbers chapter 20. The first high priest of Israel dies. Here's the story of Aaron's death. And God, I, I think, is just fittingly putting this here as a great demonstration for us. If, uh, if you don't have your word of God open to Numbers 20, verse 23, it's on the screen here. The Bible says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel. Because you rebelled against my commandment or command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. So in this demonstration here, two things about the Old Covenant are symbolized. Number one, notice it is not permanent. It was not permanent. Number two, it could not bring the people into the promised land. It couldn't even bring the first high priest into the promised land. It couldn't bring Moses into the promised land. In other words, what I'm saying is this, my friends, it was only temporary. It could not save them, nor could it save anyone. Christ is a superior high priest because he doesn't die. He doesn't need a successor. His ministry is permanent. His priesthood is forever. It's an interesting word in our text there, by the way. You look uh, at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Notice the word permanently. Key word. It means unchangeable. It means unalterable. It means something that cannot be changed. Okay? about as simple as I could put it. And so that means that Christ's priesthood could, could never come to a conclusion. It cannot be weakened, and it's always going to be effective. He's the last high priest. No other high priest will ever be needed. Precious word. I want to focus and zoom in on verse 25, because verse 25 is a very special verse in our Bible's In this one verse, we get the essence of the good news. By good news, I mean the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just take a quick look at verse 25 and see what we can learn about the essence of the good news here. Number one, we see that salvation's basis is Christ's permanent priesthood. Verse 25 says, it starts with the word consequently, and it says he is able to save to the uttermost. Now that word consequently, or in some of your Bibles has the word therefore, is showing you 
pointing back, it's pointing back to something in the context. And saying there's something back in the previous context that is important here for this discussion. It's referring to what has been said, that Christ's priesthood is permanent. It's unalterable. It cannot be changed. Therefore, the, He is now able to save forever because He Himself exists and He Himself ministers as a priest forever. Number two, salvation's power here is Christ's ability. It's His ability, not ours, not, not nothing else here. Because it says that He, Jesus, is able. Other priests weren't able to save. They, they performed all the rituals and the sacrifices, but none of those things could save anybody. They couldn't even do it partially, couldn't even do it temporarily, but Jesus Christ is able to save His people fully and eternally. Number three, salvation's nature here is bringing men near to God. Again, verse 25 is clear. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. So by delivering from sin, it qualifies believers then to come to God. Deliverance from sin, by the way, has, has three major tenses in your Bible. So if you don't understand this, you might get a little confu- confused uh, what the Bible is saying. So uh, the Bible, when it talks about salvation, it talks about it in, in a past, present, and future tense. So in the past tense, we've been freed from sin's guilt. You might call that justification. God no longer sees you as a sinner, but you're now, uh, you have the righteousness of Christ. In the present tense, we are freed from sin's power. So one is you're being uh, set, set free from sin's guilt. The present is you're set free currently from sin's power. Romans 6, you, sin no longer has dominion over you. You have a new master. You can serve him. So we're, uh, the future tense, though, is we are going to be, we, we'll be freed from sin's presence one day. Ultimately, we'll be glorified, have a new body. And so you can honestly say that I have been saved, I am saved, and I shall be saved. Okay? If you're a Christian, you've been justified, you're being sanctified, and you will be glorified. Now the cool thing in Romans 8 is that God looks at you and He sees your glorification as a done deal. It's already done in His eyes. So together, all these things represent a complete nature of salvation for us. It's a beautiful picture. Number four, salvation's objects are those who come to God to be saved. The text, by the way, mentions the objects here as those who draw near to God through Christ. So my friends, there's no other qualification that you and I need. It's the only qualification. The only thing that you can come to God with is empty hands. You need to be poor in spirit, Jesus said. You come with faith in God's Son. That's, that's all you can do. Even your righteousness is as filthy rags, the Bible says. God's not impressed with that. So there's no other way but Jesus. He himself in John 14 said, I am the way. And so this way is open to every person who puts their trust in him. You have no excuse. No excuse. There's no division. The Bible makes it clear. No racial divisions. No no political status divisions. You know, there's. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, or if you're if you're a barbarian, if you're a slave or a free man. If you're a, it doesn't matter what you are. The Bible says, put your faith in God's Son, trust in Him, and you can come to God. Number five, salvation security is Christ's perpetual intercession for us. That's what verse 25 is saying. He always lives. What's he doing? Well, amongst other things, he's making intercession for believers. So my friends, we can no more keep ourselves saved than we can save ourselves in the first place. Don't think for one moment you're getting to heaven on anything of you. God saved you, and God's the one who's keeping you. 
you need Jesus to intercede for you. So just as Jesus has the power to save us, He has the power to keep us. True believers will never lose their salvation because it's not based on you to start with. It's not based on you to keep it. So people who think they can lose their salvation got a very big theological problem. See, they're thinking it's too much about them, too man-centered theology. It's not. See, you're not going to lose your salvation because God saves you and God keeps you. Christ is constantly, eternally, and perpetually interceding for His people before the Father. And that's why you're going to go to heaven. (laughs) Okay? Not because of us. Not because of your prayer. Not because of any other good work. Number six. We see the superiority of Christ's priesthood again here as we see that Christ's character provides a superior priesthood for believers. See, it just keeps getting better and better. See, all of Israel's priests were sinful. And and because they were sinful, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could even come into the temple. Before they could offer to, to cover temporarily for the sins of the people, they, ha- they themselves had to do this. It was not so with our present high priest, though. Not the way with Jesus. Jesus didn't make an atonement for his sin because he had no sin. So Jesus dies on the cross to atone for our sin. <laughs> so what do we learn about Christ's character from this text? Of course, this isn't exhaustive, but we'll just stick with verse 26 to 28. We see that, number one, Christ is holy. Again, the idea is that Jesus, being God, is unique, He is distinct, and He is separate from all of His creation. He is set apart to God. Therefore, that makes Him worthy to be the new high priest. He is now accepted before God as this new high priest. Number two, Christ is innocent. That makes him worthy to be our high priest. Uh, in verse 26, you'll see that, that we're innocent. The idea is that he is blameless. Some of your Bibles might have that word. The idea is he is literally without evil. No evil. Not even one little minute shred of evil. Whereas you and I, of course, are intrinsically evil. <laughs> In all of our motives, our deeds, our thoughts, our words, our doings, we are totally corrupted by evil and sin. But that's not the, that's not the case with Jesus. There is no, nothing but good in Jesus. Number three, we see Christ is unstained. That means He is pure. It means Jesus is undefiled. So Jesus can come to this earth and live here for approximately 33 years and not be corrupted by it. The Old Testament priest had to be external, externally pure, had to be externally undefiled, but they could never deal with the heart issue. They still had guilt. But Christ is unstained within. He is perfect within. And so He's able to walk amongst this earth for 33 years against all the muck and the mire and the evil of this world and it not stain Him. Jesus lived His life in the defiled world without losing the least of His beauty and the least of His purity. And He moved through this world, and and yet He remained untouched by any of the blemishes of this world. And that makes Him the perfect high priest. And so, He can come to Satan, pure evilness Himself, and, and, and be left totally spotless. Satan throws everything at Him, and Jesus remains pure and sinless. There was never a high priest... And never a priest who is undefiled until Jesus comes along. Now, how is this possible? It's because his character rendered him immune from all of this evilness. He's unstained. Number four, Christ is separate from sinners. In other words, what what it's saying is this, my friends: he was an utterly he was in an utterly different class from everyone else. Now, obviously, he was not separated from sinners in the, in the sense that he never came in contact with sinners. 
It, it doesn't mean that he never mingled with sinners. It doesn't mean he never ate and drank with sinners. We know he did. The Bible says so. Uh, of course, his parents were sinners. He was in his mother's womb, Mary. Uh, his brothers and sisters were sinners. He would have played and worked with them. His friends were sinners. His disciples, of course, were sinners. All of these people Jesus encountered, they were all sinners. But yet, he ate with them, he traveled with them, he worked with them, he worshipped with them, but we see that Jesus' nature was totally separate from them. He's in a totally different class from them. He's totally different from them. And so, for this we give the highest thanks. For otherwise, Jesus Christ could not have been our Savior and become our great high priest. Number five, Christ is exalted above the heavens. That's what verse 26 says. He's exalted above the heavens because all the other things, well, it's because of all the other things that are mentioned there. Let's put it that way. And so because he is holy, because he's innocent, he's unstained, because he is separated from sinners, that's what makes him exalted. There's no one and nothing else like him. Number six, Christ is the perfect sacrifice, verse 27 says. He is the perfect sacrifice. Not only is he high priest, look at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's the perfect sacrifice. So because of all those five truths we just see there, he does not need to offer sacrifices for himself, just like the Israel's priest did. Someone who is sinless doesn't need to make a sacrifice for himself. Jesus offered only one sacrifice, not for himself, but for others. Notice it was once. A perfect sacrifice by a perfect priest. It was done, and it was done for all time. It was permanent. Number seven. Last point, Christ is perfect forever. We never have to worry about this perfection ending. Never. Because verse 28 says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So this law, my friend, that comes before the law, and we're going all the way back to Genesis. Remember? Jesus, our great high priest, is after the order of Melchizedek. That was way back at the time of Abraham. You can read it for yourself. Before the law was ever given to Moses. So all those priests of the Old Covenant, they were weak. When, when he officiated Israel's high priest, he would wear an ephod. You'll see a picture of, of a, an ephod, one's depiction of an ephod. It was a very elaborate uniform on which the priest, as a part of their uniform, they had two onyx stones, each described with the name, the, the names of six of the tribes of Israel. Attached to the ephod by gold chains was a breastplate on which were twelve more precious stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Therefore, whenever the high priest, there's a point to this, okay, as God always does, when the high priest would enter into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, he carried with him all the tribes of Israel. Not literally, of course, but figuratively. And so the high priest symbolically bore the children of Israel before God on his heart and on his shoulders. So, notice the ephods covering his heart. The two, the two stones would sit on his shoulders, symbolically referring to his heart or his affections, the shoulders representing the strength. Well, this represented what the priesthood was to be, what it should have been. First, a heart for the people. Secondly, the strength to bring them before God. Maybe some of the priests had a heart at times for the people. They may have loved the people. But they were never able to bring them before God. Never to bring that access. He always went in there by himself. Always. 
And many of these priests, no doubt, had a love and a heart for people. But none of them was able to bring the people to God. They could not even bring themselves to God fully. And so our high priest has no such weaknesses, though. Jesus has no weaknesses whatsoever. He is superior in every way. He carries our names on his heart and on his shoulders, but he needs no ephod. He needs no breastplate. He needs none of that symbolic stuff there. None of those symbols were needed for Christ because Jesus has true affection for you. He has true salvation for you. He perfectly loves us and He can perfectly save us because of who He is. So, my non-Christian friend, here's the invitation for you. Will you draw near to God through Christ so that you can be saved completely, eternally, forever? My Christian friends, will you keep drawing near to God through Christ so that you will be completely saved? Because none of us are in heaven yet, are we? We all still have sin natures. We are still sinners. We long for the day, as creation does, when sin will be done away and the curse is ultimately removed. The old heavens, the old earth will be destroyed. And God's going to make all things new. We long for that day. We long for new bodies, glorified bodies, with no more sin. It's coming. But my friends, you need to, even as a Christian, you need to keep drawing near to God through Christ. Never let go of Christ. As, as Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus. Why? Because He's the author and finisher of your faith. He's the beginner, the author, and he's going to complete it. That's the finisher. So you've got to keep holding on. Never let go. Will you keep drawing near to God through Christ so that you will be completely saved? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Christ. We're thankful for his indestructible life for his superior priesthood in all these ways. We're thankful for this oath that you gave even thousands of years or a thousand years before Christ came to the earth. We're thankful for the beautiful picture we've seen of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis and how Christ comes in the order of him. We're thankful that there is a new priesthood since the old priesthood was so weak and useless and could not bring access to you. So thank you for opening up the temple, if you will, and making us all temples of the Holy Spirit. And may we know that truth. May it be comforting and precious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.